What scares you the most? Is it clusters of little holes? Or something bigger, like being stuck in an avalanche of people? Or perhaps it's just one person, a stranger next door. This is Eerie, a new limited series podcast from Brock Media. I'm Anna Bogutska, the series producer and host, and throughout these eight episodes, my intention is to creep you out. Every episode, a different writer will tell a brand new story, something strange, mysterious, and occasionally grotesque, written especially for this podcast, and designed to scare someone, maybe you, out of their mind. In this penultimate episode, writer and director Paris Tartilla brings us The Greenhouse, a neighborly tale of botanic terror, performed by Oliver Wellington and Alan Cordiner. So listen in and discover what's inside The Greenhouse. The dormancy of seeds is a fascinating thing. They can appear to be nothing more than dry specks of matter, emaciated, coarse, and devoid of life. They can exist as they are unchanged for decades. Take the humble lima bean. It's a stubborn, robust, and hardened survivor of evolution. It can be a proud little thing. On first appearance, it has shiny, smooth skin and a tough outer shell. Put it in moist, temperate conditions, however, its shine will dull and its skin will crack. It may look like it's breaking apart, it may even think it's breaking apart, but inside, a transformation is occurring. It just needed the right conditions, and from dormancy springs forth life. I've never been an emotional person. Expression was never my strong suit, you see. I suppose that's why I took to the uniform. It gave me license to explore my somewhat violent urges. It was like a second skin. The war hardened me, gave me a tough outer shell. I saw and took part in what people would call terrible things. When it was over, I found myself in the humid heat of Malaya, living behind another uniform and a shiny badge of the colonial police. You wore a fresh orchid on your lapel the first day I laid eyes on you. I recall saying that orchids are notoriously difficult to look after. Your deep brown eyes flicked up at me and you said, Well, we're no more difficult than the average houseplant. I thought I was nothing more than a shell. But you saw past the damage. You nurtured the good inside me. You you gave me purpose. I suppose you knew how to create the right conditions. Most flower enthusiasts often make the mistake of thinking annual flowers refer to flowers that bloom once a year. This is not the case. You see, an annual flower is one that grows, blooms and dies within one year. Even though annuals only survive one year, they tend to have a longer blooming period. For that reason, they are a beloved kind. However, once cut, their lifespan reduces dramatically and may only last weeks. They said it was pancreatic cancer. It had spread to your spine. They told us six months, and if we're lucky, you'd get one year. 
Of course, you shrugged it off as if it was nothing but a cold. I remember it started as a backache that wouldn't go away. I told you to stop spending too much time crouching over flowers, but you loved that greenhouse. According to you, it was all the years of living in English weather that made your bones ache. You told me a tropical flower doesn't belong in cold weather. I gave you massages, bought a new mattress, sent you to specialists, and yet the aches persisted. You insisted on just hot drinks. There's nothing quite like a good cup of tea, you'd say. You put on your good graces and continued to spend time in your beloved greenhouse. The glass would shimmer in the summer sun. It was like a house of light. I watched you truly flourish inside those glass walls, but I knew you were in there to hide your pain. I was in a fury when you denied yourself relief, but you didn't believe in Western medicine. Seeing that you could no longer tend to your flowers, it broke me. Thankfully, my dear, you weren't the only flower enthusiast. Atropa belladonna, also known as deadly nightshade, has been used for medicinal purposes since the early 4th century. Witches supposedly used it for flying potions. It's been used as poison to murder emperors, and its numbing effects can cause temporary paralysis, but in the right doses, it can greatly reduce pain. The nightshade brought you miraculous relief. The blight was still there, but for just a moment, you were unburdened and without pains. Brevity of time gave way to your temporal magnificence, and once more you were in bloom. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything so sublime, but moments of majesty are only moments indeed. They said six months, maybe a year, but it was weeks. I'd just come back from picking up some provisions to prepare your nightshade tincture when I noticed the reflective glimmering light from our garden was gone. I stepped outside. Your beloved greenhouse had been desecrated, and what little nightshade we had growing was ruined. I have seen men disemboweled by shrapnel. I have seen brains squeezed out of eye sockets as tanks nonchalantly rolled over the faces I grew up with. But nothing quite took my breath away like seeing the broken shards of your greenhouse. You never register shock. There is just disbelief, an extreme cognitive dissonance with reality. Hope was shattered. When the last of the nightshade tincture wore off, your pain returned with a vengeance, as if it were robbed of its duty. It was unrelenting. Your body twisted like there were invisible vines, asphyxiating every limb. There was no relief. Even cold water felt like fire. You said swallowing felt like hot, prickly glass that would tear at your stomach. In your final hours, you begged me to bring you to your greenhouse, but I couldn't bear the thought of telling you it was gone. And so I denied you your last wish. And I watched you, gasping for air, until your final breath. I'll never forget your face, coiled and wretched. Death had taken you, but 
left your body cast in pain's grip. I don't remember getting there, but I found myself back in the garden looking down at the shards of broken glass. Reflected back at me was a person I had not seen in years. A person without purpose. Those eyes were cold, hard, and lifeless. Whatever light was once there was now gone. They say grief is love with nowhere to go. But what of rage? What of vengeance? Some flowers like the Banksia need fire to break their seed dormancy. Who would have thought that something as destructive as fire was a necessary proponent for life? Outside of my suspicions, it would be quite impossible to find the glass-smashing perpetrator, but I knew it was a young sap. In the piles of broken glass, I found these purplish rocks. The silly thing somehow left their small handprints on it. No one ever thinks of plants as hunters. Well, they don't hunt per se, but some do have prey. I particularly love the Nepenthes alata plant. It's a rather bizarre but beautifully macabre thing that lures its quarry with sweet nectar. <laughs> the poor buggers then end up drowning in its digestive fluids. <laughs> now, I'd heard of children being lured away with sweets, even from when I was a child, but I, I didn't think it actually worked. I must say, despite being gagged and bound, that first child made quite the racket. I had to play Marla's fifth to cover his screams, but my goodness, what an extraordinary feeling it was to break him over the brass and percussion section of the scherzo. I felt like Bernstein. Plucking fingernails here, pulling out tendons there. I could have gone the whole 70 minute symphony, but alas, he gave out during the adagietto. I must admit, I got a bit carried away with the first one. About halfway in, I could tell he was telling the truth. He did not throw those rocks. One might have stopped, perhaps even brought him to the hospital, but that would not have been to my satisfaction. Besides, I needed all the practice I could get for when I had the real culprit in my hands. You would have hated it, but I had to cover our walls with sound insulation boards. I didn't like them myself, but I didn't want to be a nuisance to the neighbours. It was fun reacquainting myself with an old skill set. During the war, to find yourself sitting in a chair before me was most certainly bad news. Back then, I had developed a technique which was eventually named after me, called the Wavy Davy. <laughs> By placing small rocks between fingers and looping string around the top of each digit, I could tighten the string until the bones snapped. Their fingers looked wavy, you see. <laughs> anyway, it took a while to get the hang of it, especially with smaller fingers, but I got there in the end. Be glad for twelve. Had it not been for the nightshade sherbets, he could no doubt overwhelm me. But I did find it rather disturbing how brittle he was for his size. He must have had a terrible diet, because it couldn't have been two twists of the vice clamp before the bone in his forearm snapped. I was certainly going to break it anyway, but that was an accident. I decided to introduce him to some vegetables. 
carrots, celery, root veg, that kind of stuff. And I told him, if you can eat everything on your plate, then you can leave the table. <laughs> oh, how he tried. I hadn't left him with many teeth, but he was gumming the damn things like there was no tomorrow. He did rather well, actually. But eventually he succumbed to the humble broccoli when it got stuck in his throat. I really admired their resilience. Especially the younglings who liked to loiter behind our greenhouse. They were full of bravado, as you might expect from a bunch of 14-year-olds, but once in my chair, oh, how they wailed for their mummies. By then I knew my skills had fully returned, because unlike the first, these boys lasted for days. Oh, they made an extraordinary mess. Quite like the graffiti mess they made of the back alleyway. They squealed while I pruned their fingers and toes over an absolutely sublime arrangement by Purcell called Leia Garland. And I did indeed lay you a wonderful pink garland of fingers by your trunk. Ah, oh, you always wanted to come back as a cherry tree. You even knew the exact spot you wanted to be buried. Of course, it would be in your greenhouse. As a sapling, you grew bigger every year. But nothing quite like these boys made your leaves shimmer or bloom fuller. They made for fantastic fertilizer. Ten years flew by, but our boy in question who surely was no longer a boy but a man, somehow escaped me. My body may be wilting, but my rage has never told. Five more years pass, I find myself in dormancy, wondering if I'll ever find him. Both satisfaction and death eluded me. But then something miraculous happens, something outright divine. I have a therapist now who tells me I should gift myself the compassion and care my younger self always needed. I'm trying, but I guess I'll struggle with the concept because my younger self was such a murderous piece of shit. It's maybe a bit dramatic, but not quite untrue. I don't know. Maybe you'd agree. According to my therapist, children who feel ignored or abandoned often act out. Their loneliness manifests into all kinds of things. Some withdraw into themselves, others develop unhealthy obsessions. I... I developed urges. You left me home alone a lot when I was a kid. I don't blame you for that, by the way. As a single parent, you had to work late to make ends meet. But I was an only child with nothing to do. Maybe it was boredom that drove me to do the things I did. You were always too tired to talk to me. But you always encouraged me to follow my interests. Back then, very little interested me. But you insisted there was beauty in everything. With no one else to look after me, you was always super paranoid. I'd get mixed up with the wrong crowd or get abducted or go missing. I mean, you weren't wrong. Kids did actually go missing one summer, but that was long after we left. I was 12, and I thought I was grown up. But you said I was too young to even play out on my own, so you'd locked me in. Our garden, however, was free for me to play in and explore. The garden 
was my universe. On one particular hot summer day, I remember finding an ant colony. I loved watching the lines of marching ants coming and going. I hadn't noticed, but an ant had crawled up my arm. I held it between my fingers and watched its antennae scrambling to make sense of what was happening to it. As I watched its tiny mandibles attempt to claw at my skin, an unfamiliar sensation washed over me. I had an urge. I think it was excitement. I pulled its head off and watched its body continue to move until it finally came to a stop. I spent an entire afternoon plucking tiny heads off of ants. After the initial excitement wore off, I looked for something bigger. I'd recently heard you talking to a neighbour that wringing your cabbage patch with salt would protect them from slugs. Apparently, it burned their skin, which you hated the sound of, but to me, made my palms sweat with anticipation. I grabbed the salt shaker, and I watched their antennae-like eyes recoil and their skin bubble away as I poured salt on their bodies. <sighs> it seemed I had discovered something I was interested in. Enjoyed, even. But something told me that this wasn't quite what you had in mind for me. I decided hiding my newfound passion was probably for the best. I worked my way through every insect I could find, from pulling wings off of butterflies to pinning down worms and gutting them. It was exhilarating. But the excitement was always short-lived. And naturally, I seeked out bigger things. I'll never forget the look on your face when you discovered the remains of my interests in our garden shed. They had set a trap and managed to capture a pigeon, and much like the ants and the butterflies, I relieved this poor bird of its head and wings. You were so distant with me after that. For a while I thought I was a psychopath, but recently I've been experiencing overwhelming bouts of guilt. I suppose my childhood dickheadery is coming home to roost. My therapist says I use very punitive language when describing my childhood and that I should be tender and use softer, more forgiving adjectives. You are not a little psycho, Misha. You are misunderstood. You are not manipulative, Misha. You were neglected and needed attention. On the advice of a neighbour, I was sent away to boarding school to straighten me out. Completely unaffordable for us, but then you found a snazzy new job which gave me a chance to get my life together. I'll admit, it was probably the best thing that could have happened for me. My urges left me and I became a somewhat normal and boring person. Of course, at the time, I thought you wanted to get rid of me. Maybe you did. I pleaded with you. Begged you to not send me away. David says this is where he went to school and it made him who he is today. David? As in Stranger Danger Dave? As in Pedo Dave? That's not quite fair. He was just a lonely old man, but why are you listening to this tough? I thought. You said he had a wife which no one had ever seen. In fact, I never actually met David but his garden faced ours while his house was on the street over from us. 
You admired his greenhouse. You admired his gardening knowledge and life philosophy. David says purpose brings you life. Fuck off, David. I didn't want purpose. I wanted to pull things apart. I think you had hoped my garden time would lead to an interest in plants and nurturing and not the torturous murder of the birds and the bees. <sighs> Ironically, I think you got what you hoped for, Mum. Maybe it's because of the guilt that followed. I didn't find my purpose. But I am a botanist now. The decision was made for me and there was no choice about it. I hated you for it. But I hated him more. I was a spiteful little shit back then. And I was going to make him pay for inspiring you to send me away. I remember the first time I saw it. I could see it from my mum's bedroom. I mean, it was difficult to ignore. That thing glimmered in the sun and it towered above all the other gardens. Tropical green leaves pressed against the glass and it was populated by fiery orange and lush violet flowers. When I think of it, those flowers were probably nightshade. It was actually quite beautiful and perfect and just begging to be smashed. One day after school, I found myself in the alleyway that separates our back gardens. The alley was covered in shitty graffiti practiced by these three white boys who christened themselves the big man's crew. Everyone knew the big man's in our neighborhood, mostly for being loud 14 year olds and for doing the drugs, as you would say. There were always a fuck ton of blackberry bushes that lined the sides of the alley, which I could never not help myself to, and my hands were stained red from eating so many. I don't quite remember throwing the first rock. All I remember is the sound. The cathartic cacophony of smashing glass. I can almost hear it in slow motion. I think I was so drunk from the rush of terror and euphoria that all I can remember is scrambling back through the front door. I ran up to your room and spied through the netting. I won't lie. I was pretty shocked when I saw the damage. Almost every pane of glass was smashed. I waited for any signs or sounds of abject fury, but nothing came. I could hear blood pounding through my veins and a high-pitched ringing of smashing glass rang through my ears. I must have fallen asleep by the window because I was woken up by rowdy laughter and garage music playing through tinny speakers. I peered through the netting and saw the bobbing red baseball caps of the big man's crew through puffs of cigarette smoke. They jeered about the Gyaldem and Peng Tings while they chugged on White Ace. But then, the red caps stopped bobbing. The laughing stopped. Just above the fence I could see a slow, approaching head with thinning hair. The music stopped. I'd never seen David up close, but I knew it was him. His voice was barely audible, soft even. But strangely, I sensed no anger in it. The boys of the big man's were only a couple of years older than me, but they really looked like children next to David. They moved along without a fuss. I watched him assess the damage to his greenhouse. He looked 
devastated, heartbroken even. David sifted through the shards of glass and picked something up, something dark, purplish. I couldn't quite see, but he raised it to his nose, smelling it, studying it, and then I saw what was in his hands. My heart was in free fall, but my body was frozen. It was a jagged edge rock, and it literally had my bloody blackberry handprint on it. He scanned the ground around his feet, probably looking for more evidence. Slowly, he began to turn towards our garden fence, his eyes drifting upwards until he was looking directly into my bedroom window. It was like he was looking right at me, like he could see me through the netting. I could feel my heart trying to tear its way out of my chest, but I didn't dare move. I thought he had pegged me for sure. He put the rock back in his pocket and walked away. The following week, I was gone. You moved to a smaller house and I never came back. That was 15 years ago. My therapist invited me to speak my truth out loud. You'd have been so disappointed to hear this. I guess I'm glad you're not around to hear it in person, but now that I've said my piece, I feel a little lighter. But there's still someone else I have to speak my truth to. Maybe if I'd been sent to juvie or made to mow his lawn for a year, I wouldn't feel so caught up. I'd feel like the debt had been paid, but there were zero repercussions. Nothing happened. No trouble, no consequences, nothing. This is what happens every day. Shitty people get away with shitty things all the time. Yeah. He interfered with my life, but I just know he had good intentions. And I showed him gratitude by smashing up his greenhouse that clearly meant a lot to him. I feel like I need to say I'm sorry. I need to look him in the face and tell him I was the one that threw those rocks. I've got to go back. I'm going back. But then, something miraculous happens. Something outright divine. Now, who should turn up to my doorstep but a young man weathered by a great deal of guilt? A man I couldn't tell was real or a vision, but he tells me his name is Misha, and he was the boy who smashed your greenhouse. Good gracious, how about that? Down to the finest detail, he tells me of his blackberry-stained hands that threw the rocks, how he too had developed violent urges, and apparently it was I who had convinced his mother to send him to boarding school. He was angry that I had convinced her to send him away. But he thanks me, genuinely and warmly. He told me... 
it led him to becoming a botanist. It occurred to me I was sensing somewhat of a kindred spirit in him. How curious. Had his urges been nurtured, he may well have been just like me. I invited him to join me for a cup of tea, and I listened to him speak. He carried the burden of this secret for many years. I, of course, feigned ignorance. Oh, I'm afraid I don't recall, my boy. I must admit it crossed my mind that maybe I didn't want him to sit in my chair. As he continued to share his truth, he told me he never quite found his purpose in life. But it struck me in that moment that I could give it to him. He asked if he could see the greenhouse, and of course I obliged, but I noticed his eyes began to drift around the room. He was curious about the unusual pile of old kids' trainers, red caps, and dusty toys behind me, and wondered if I had grandchildren. I said, we never had any kids. I could sense a minute shift in the air, an awkward silence, if you will. You could see his curiosity taking a turn. To fill the silence, he began to drink the tea I prepared for him. Over the years, I rebuilt the greenhouse and surrounded you with nightshade. I began to refine my recipe until I developed a potent tea that was strong enough to incapacitate, but weak enough it wouldn't kill. He asked what kind of herbal tea it is, to which I replied, Oh, it's not a herb. This is Atropa belladonna. <laughs> the blood drained from his face. The stuff worked brilliantly fast. I watched beads of sweat form on his forehead. His pupils dilated and his breathing became laboured. He tried to speak, but the nightshade had numbed his tongue and his legs no longer responded to him. I gathered he was feeling rather alarmed. I had to wipe the dribble from his mouth. That's when I confessed my memory was perfectly intact. Oh, to watch his eyes slowly look up to me, panicked and wrapped in tears. Oh, his terror. It was, how can I say, <laughs> delicious to see unfold. I smiled. Oh, my boy, how I've dreamed of this moment. Having grown so much nightshade, I was able to use much of its woody vines to create lengths of rope, hardy stuff, and incredibly irritating to skin. Shall we go to the greenhouse? I said. The moment required no Beethoven, no Mahler. He was going to provide all the music I needed. I wheeled in his limp body, and I watched his eyes darting around like flies. We were enclosed in a terrarium of beauty and poison, surrounded by years of nightshade. I stripped him naked and sat him before you. Using the lengths of rope vine I made, I tied him up limb by limb. His entire body was enmeshed in a butcher's knot, and the remaining vine was connected to a crank mechanism. It allowed me to tighten the rope which held him in a cutting grip, much like the way the cancer held you. He was going to experience your agony. And over the course of a week, he did. As the tea's paralyzing effects began to wear off, I slowly wound the crank. 
his muffled groans found clarity, and with every turn, they soon turned to wails. He was so tightly trussed up, his flesh poked out the mesh. This hellraiser was firmly in my grip. Over three days, the rope's poison had weakened his skin and cut into every part of his body. His wounds had festered, and his skin had swelled over the vines. It looked most uncomfortable, I must say. At one point, I couldn't tell if he had passed out or if his eyes had swelled closed. I didn't want him to miss the best part, but I, I had just the thing to perk him up. I kept much of the broken shards of glass from all those years ago. Why I felt compelled to keep something from such a traumatic event, I don't know. But it finally found its purpose. I told him how he had robbed you of relief, how you described swallowing felt like hot, prickly glass tearing through your stomach. I wasn't sure if he cried because of the pain he had caused you or for pain he was about to receive. Probably both, but I like to think it was the former. I sensed there wasn't much left in him, so I endeavoured to make his final moments worthy of the occasion. Misha, my boy, I'm going to make you sing. I heated the glass shards to near molten. They were incandescent with heat. I pried his mouth open and poured the shards down his throat. His shrieking and the scorching shrill of searing flesh made for the most sublime noise. For many, this would be a horrific cacophony, but for me, this short-lived music was the most beautiful symphony I'd ever heard. And then it was over. I looked upon his wretched body, his back and neck arched, his face held on to the agony as if his lifeless body was still screaming towards the heavens. His purpose and mine finally fulfilled. And now I sit before you, beautiful as ever. I must say, I'm feeling rather tired, my love. I can't tell if it's the week I've had or the pot of nightshade tea I've just drunk. Ah, ah. Oh, I can hear music. How beautiful. Thank you for listening to The Greenhouse, written by Paris Tartilla and performed by Oliver Wellington and Alan Cordiner. Eerie is produced and hosted by Anna Pogatskaya, edited by Mike Munzer, with original music by Mitch Bain, and our artwork was designed by Mike Lee Graham. Eerie was co-produced by Regina Cameron Pereira for Brock Media and our executive producers were Sarah Brocklehurst and Nicole Davis. 
Follow us at We Are Brock Media on Twitter and Instagram for updates on Eerie, Never Told, and other Brock Media podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode of Eerie, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your scary stories. Thank you.